We are recording, and this is the Filmography Podcast, Season 1, The Films of Francis Ford Coppola. I'm your co-host, Reese Crothers, and I am joined, as always, with my co-host and friend, Bjorn Olsen. Say hi, Bjorn. Hey, everybody. Hey, Reese. Um, welcome to episode number 11. We're at uh, Gardens of Stone. 1987. So just a year after mm-hmm. Peggy Sue got married, which we covered in the mm-hmm. previous episode. Um, yeah. And we're also looking at another film released in the same year, a short film that was made for television, the Rip Van Winkle episode of Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. Yeah. Which might be the yeah, p- place I mean, to start. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a weird one. I mean, it, Coppola, of course, as we've talked about a bunch, is, you know, doing projects for hire in this era uh, to pay off some debt. And uh, Fairy Tale Theater was a cable series that, uh, was produced and sort of conceived by uh, Shelley Duvall as like um, retellings of, of uh, legends and famous fairy tales, um, and it's it's not like there was a uh, like a famous director doing every episode kind of thing, but there are a few. Um, epi- like Peter Medic did did a few episodes, and um, oh, I'm blanking on some of the other directors, but uh, I mean it was it's. Francis Ford Coppola, I don't know exactly how he wound up being involved in doing the fairy tale theater episode, but he 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 does the Rip Van Winkle. Um, it's like a, it's, it's about an hour long, just under an hour long, um, and aimed at children or or you know like definitely like reading age children, not super young children. But this is you know yeah, and that's kind project. of a caveat that you have to judge it by considering that it's yeah. kind of for kids it's and it's yeah. you know television it looks like video i think not film and yeah and it's very theatrical uh, I, I mean it's 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 a play i think it's a film play there is yeah i think that um i i i remember watching some of these as a kid and i think that um these some of these episodes or that the show in general, a lot of it was filmed on sound stages, and they um, used uh, the same sound stages for several episodes. So it does have like it does look a, a lot like sort of like a Christmas pantomime kind of thing, yeah. um, where every everybody is is very cartoony, and there is you know there is a if if you're looking at it as sort of like a non uh, uh, like an adult film viewer, the funny parts and the enjoyment of it are sort of seeing, you know, like Harry Dean Stanton yeah. in the lead and Tally Shire uh, with the Coppola family connection as his, uh, like, the world's most shrewiest wife. <laughs> and Chris Tim Penn. Conway shows up in the second half and Chris Penn and they're all kind of like, Hamming it up and 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 and, and uh, sort of playing it towards a, a younger audience, and it's you know it's entertaining. Um, but, it, it's uh, pretty yeah, beautiful. It's, I mean, to me, there's something that sort of almost like pre envisions some of the some of the visuals of Dracula, like the the really mm-hmm, blood red yep. sky, the the yep. moon with the you know the, the once again he's leaning back into uh, artifice. And this is a, yeah. this is a fairy tale. It's not supposed to look real by any stretch of the imagination. It's all very expressionistic. Yeah. Um, but it reminds me somewhat of the way that it, so much of it is bathed in colors. Um, it reminded me of one from the heart, um, and the theatricality mm-hmm. of it sort of reminded me of you know Coppola had said he wanted to be a theater director and you know musical theater director, yeah. and he seems to be very much in his element here in the fairy tale world. And yeah. I think it it's when we get to Dracula, you will be able to make more, um, uh, comparisons to the, the, the aesthetic of both pieces, you know, cause I think there's a lot, there's a lot of shadow and light and color and atmosphere between the two movies. It's similar. Um, but for, for what it is, I mean, as a piece of a children's piece of a fairy tale, he takes a story that it, it's not much of a story, right? The Rip Van Winkle story is basically, yeah. you know, <laughs> an old man wanders off and uh, has an encounter with ghosts that puts him to sleep for 20 years and he comes back and most of what he had loved is gone. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually he's remembered. I mean, like nothing much happens in yeah. the in the fairy tale itself, 
but it's given yeah. this kind of melancholy treatment by Coppola yeah. and it has this, it, it feels more than the sum of its parts in a lot of ways. But I think you're right. The thing, the main attraction here is Harry Dean Stanton seeming to have fun playing the part of Rip Van Winkle. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, it's good casting too. Absolutely. Um, and he, I, I think it is, a, you know, um, a bit of an inside joke, I guess. There is like a extended hallucinatory sequence in the middle of, yeah. of the fairy tale theater episode where he, he is off in the woods and he gets lost and he meets some um, like mystical woodland creatures, like leprechaunish creature, creatures. Um, the ghosts of Hudson uh, and his crew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And drinks some of their uh, mind-altering beverage, <laughs> which supposedly puts him to sleep for, for 20 years. So it is kind of funny seeing, you know, Harry Dean Stanton kind of thought as like a counter cultural figure in a way, as, at least as, as, as an actor and from, you know, his, his life um, portraying this, you know, this, this man who just wants to sleep and, yeah. and, 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 and party with, you know, some, some weirdos in the, in the forest. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it. That sequence is kind of magical, though. Like it really is. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, it's operatic, and yeah, I think Coppola was having fun with it. But the colors are so vibrant, and and the music. Was it Carmine Coppola that did the music for the for the episode? I feel like it was. Um, I'm not sure actually. I uh, I don't I don't recall if he did. Maybe he I think did. he did. Um, but there might have also been like out. Composers I feel like most of the people, well. like the technicians and stuff, were people that all came with the show. But I think I feel like yeah. Carmine did the music, and I could be wrong. But but it's but again, it's like it's musical theater, and it's more expressionistic. Like the my biggest when I look back on after we talked about um, Finian's Rainbow, my, my kind of biggest problem is like he didn't lean into the artifice of it enough. Like, and maybe it was the problem of making a documentary at a time when there's no real, you know, there's no computer generated effects. Everything had to be practical. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it doesn't look that great. It's not magical. It doesn't pull you into the world. Uh, the way that I feel like even he, he, that he does successfully, even in this little short fairy tale theater piece. Um, you know, it's an, that sequence is kind of intoxicating the sequence with the ghosts and the, the magic potion and, you know, the, the music that's playing over it and everything. And then, and then it's great when he falls asleep and it's kind of a neat sequence with the time passing and then he wakes Mm -hmm. up with, moss all over him and his big gray beard and stuff it's like it does ha- it yeah. does feel pretty magic i wish i had seen it as a kid yeah yeah you're right actually uh carmine coppola did do the music oh did he for yeah, it i thought he did. Um, and uh yeah it's uh, you know it's like um it, it it's interesting because we talked we've talked about um coppola exploring you know the past and the sort of the you know, different cultural and social political histories of, of, um, of America. And this is like the very beginnings of it, like Washington Irving, yeah. who wrote the Rip Van Winkle story. Um, his big thing was writing about sort of early colonial and pre-colonial America. And this is like a story about right, going sort of from a Dutch settlement to this like, um, early, early, uh, you know, the early, early days of um, America becoming a country, and and all the political wheelings and dealings. I mean, it's funny that he has this the, these political references yeah. in it, which would go over the heads of, of most children. Like, are you are you a Democrat, sir, <laughs> or are you a Federalist, or whatever, whatever? Yeah. And and he's, I'm Dutch, and, and all that kind of. So, well, it's a it's um, a it's a good. Uh, I think it's serving there in an educating uh, in an education yeah. context, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, it's meant to teach you about some of the yeah. early American figures. Um, they talk about was it? Don't they talk about um, was it Ben Franklin with the lightning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, yeah. It, they say he's discovered electricity. <laughs> right. <laughs> And and I mean it's it's funny that I'm doing these voices like this, but, but this that's is how, how they everybody do everybody talks and yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's there's no hint at subtlety or you know naturalism in no. this. I mean, it's very much not no. from the director of The Godfather, you know, but it is very much from the yeah. director of One from the Heart. And I think one thing that we can yeah, totally, really yeah. sort of acknowledge by now is that even though there's a lot of similarity in the aesthetic of Coppola's pictures, the style really does change per movie. And I think he's he's even talked yeah. about that, that the style of the picture has really got to come out of the 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 subject matter or out of the essence of the picture itself. So yeah. now that we've looked at enough of his movies, we can really see that each one of them, um, that's true. The style is very, very different. The Godfather films obviously have a uniform style, um, mm-hmm. and, but but the style of Apocalypse Now is very different from the style of The Godfather. And, and maybe the conversation, um, I don't know, There's, there's the, the, those films, the 70s films all, I think, share more uh, aesthetically and, and thematically and stuff than, than these pictures he's making at a time when he's making a movie a year. Um, but yeah, they're, but, uh, they're, no, they're like, pretty radically different from one to the next. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're absolutely like your instincts are absolutely correct with the conversation. Like the conversation really has that gritty 1970s feel to it that, I mean, it's like the Godfather, it just doesn't have like the Godfather. You wouldn't mistake for, you know, a movie like the friends of Eddie Coyle or the taking of Pelham one, two, three. And that aesthetic is shared by the conversation. And the conversation looks more like the French connection than it, than it does look like the Godfather. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's also interesting. I think it's kind of a perfect form with Coppola, uh, um, you know, trying to challenge himself um, with different styles and aesthetics that you have this filmmaker who is always, you know, like from the earliest parts of his career, he's always challenging himself to do different things and, explore different ideas and then you have that mixed with his um the realities of of his career and his business life at this point where he has to do that he has to take on different projects and and by you know by by nature he has to try and uh, you know look at different styles and different ways of filmmaking and you know he doesn't doesn't have um, everything that he wants at his disposal all the time. Yeah, he described um, that period, and, I think in a Vulture article, he said, you know, this mm-hmm. was a time in my life when I was having to make a picture a year uh, in order yeah. to keep my house. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, but exactly. it, it doesn't, that desperation isn't visible because he's still, in all these films he's been I making, agree. especially all these ones we've talked about post One from the Heart, they're all pretty big swings, you know, creatively. Yeah. And like, I mean, mm-hmm. even uh, the Cotton Club, which seems like a popular genre, um, you got musicals and gangsters, and um, you know it's still pretty expressionistic the way it's shot, and you know it's it's uh, whether it's making a teenage movie in Rumblefish, you know, in black and white, or you know doing something as nostalgic as The Outsiders, you know, or just the fact that he did teen movies at all, um, mm-hmm. you know, all these f- films that he's been making have been these big swings, with the exception of say like. You know, Peggy Sue Got Married is seems like kind of a safer, more commercial choice, but but mm-hmm. um, but it's a comedy, but a comedy and, and a, you know, a female centric and um, yeah, you know, a fa- fantasy picture, which is something that he wasn't yeah uh, accustomed to making. Um, yeah, you know, totally. And so and so there's a there's a kind of a wildness, and I th- feel like he must have been uh, a great creative experience to do this Rip Van Winkle piece because of the fact that. You know, it's not really about the plot. It's just pretty much mm-hmm. about the visuals and the feeling of it, and yeah, and the theatricality of it. It's supposed to look fake, so it's embraced. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you really get a sense of who Francis Ford Coppola, the musical director, would have been. And it's it's a I, I found it to be a really fun sort of trippy experience, um, even despite the fact that the story is kind of you know so so. I never yeah. read the Washington no, Irving story, so I don't know. I can't really compare it as a literary ad- adaptation. But this, again, this is what we've talked about this too, that if you look at things across his filmography that are constant, mm-hmm. one of the things is he makes these literary adaptations and he, yeah. he really adapts himself to the style of the writer. So I don't, I, I wonder what, what the uh, Irving piece is like, but he, um, but he doesn't direct them in the same way. Like he doesn't do an S.E. Hinton novel the same way he does a Mario Puzo novel or whatever. So it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting how he 
how flexible his style is. And yet, I still think there is something that says this is the hand of Francis Ford Coppola, always. It's not like he's a chameleon and there's nothing that comes across. Like I said, when you when you see this one, it's hard not to picture some of the images from Dracula and feel that it's very much mm-hmm. the same filmmaker. Or even just because it it, it it almost does have a horror film aesthetic, um, you know, the forest, the ghosts and stuff, that also recalls even Dimension 13, some of the angles and some of the tension. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it feels very much um, like a Francis Ford Coppola piece, even though it's fairy tale theater, yeah. and even though it's for TV, and even though it's just an episode, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm not totally sure how successful it is overall. It, I mean, it, it does feel a little bit like it might have, uh, you know, been a bit of a rush job, but not yeah. in that sort of like... Uh, but in a charming way, right? Like in a, in a home, yeah, yeah. In a, in a amateur theater yeah. kind of way. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it. I don't know. I mean, it's. It's. I wonder if it works better in the context of seeing the other episodes together with, with it. But um, I, I, it's. It's definitely you know an interesting little um, diversion and curiosity in, piece in his work. Yeah, I think it's more. It's going to be more. Um, if we're thinking about it as we're going through it chronologically it's going to be more interesting as an afterthought when we get to Dracula than it is as a standalone piece, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because it introduces also, some ideas, some visual ideas and some, and some aesthetics that, that he comes back to in Dracula in, a, in such a major way. Yeah. Also, I, and you know, I think it's something for him, you know, like it's, uh, he's, it's the kind of thing that he's happy to do because, you know, he can, he, 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 does like a little bit of even though he has this reputation of being like the foremost most maverick filmmaker you can think of i think he does like a little bit of structure which is why he works on a lot of literary adaptations so this has structure in in that and also in like just the way that it that it's made and i think he also appreciates that a little bit in that he doesn't have to do a lot of the extra work in putting together something like uh, Rick Van Winkle adaptation, but he can, you know, really sort of pay attention to the, the details that he wants to pay attention to. I think he's just having a field day with the colors and the visuals and the, yeah. and the sets and stuff. Cause the sets are great. Like the forest, um, you know, it looks fake, but it's enchanting, you know, it would yeah. have, I would have loved to have seen like, what would he have done if he did something like, you know, one of those Wes Anderson stop motions, something where Coppola controlled the visuals of too. Oh know, Yeah. Like he could Absolutely, have done a great yeah. animated film, I think, because when he yeah. when he when he indulges in this artifice, it's really beautiful. Yeah. So, but it's uh, but it's a you know, it's a minor work because of the fact that it is. I think it's forty eight minutes long. It's it's a short film. It's yeah. made for TV. It's not. It's not. It, it obviously doesn't carry the weight of one of his one of his feature films. But it's released. I don't know whether it came out first or post Gardens of Stone. But we've just had. Peggy Sue Got Married. This is a big departure from Peggy Sue Got Married. But then Gardens of Stone, I think, very much feels like from the director of Peggy Sue Got Married. It's another tri-star picture. It's shot mm-hmm. by Jordan Cronenworth, uh, who shot Peggy Sue. Um, it's, a, it's a really handsome, beautifully mounted film. And it's also, mm-hmm. like Peggy Sue, very gentle and very... It's kind of... It's not... It's not um, overly challenging from a narrative standpoint by any means. Um, mm. It's just a simple, gentle film that has that same kind of warm, nostalgic afterglow about it that Peggy Sue had. Yeah, in, in a similar way to Peggy Sue Got Married, it, it, it's a smaller scale film, it's, but there are touches to it that are the touches of, of, of an epic. The, the, you know, the details and, and um, the way that the 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 locations look and his use of um the, the locations uh you know the actual real locations and um it's kind of an effortless you know, quality it, that I think could only come from someone who at this point is a master yeah. of the form like he was a maverick like you say mm-hmm. but he also then I think just by sheer nature of having to keep making turning turning these films out like he's just a seasoned pro at this point so he makes it For look sure. easy in this movie, but it, it's every detail is correct. And the visuals are pristine and the to, it's well paced. And it's all, you know, all these things that come from, I think being a master director. Um, 
but it, like you say, it is a much smaller scale story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the story of a young soldier who gets sent to Arlington to be part of the old guard um, mm-hmm. and who considers that kind of like, um, well, who, who, who would much rather be on the front line of Vietnam. And that's his big concern. Yeah. And it's about his relationship to the James Conn character, who is uh, a, a sergeant at the of the old guard, and who, like the uh, the young soldier, would rather be doing something else, and would rather be um, instructing uh, infantrymen who are about to be sent to Vietnam. And the idea yeah. being that he wishes only that he could uh, help save some lives, and instead, because he's stuck at this, um, uh, I forget what Fort Myer. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, amongst all these so-called toy soldiers, um, he decides he's going to try and make a difference with just one soldier. So that's D.B. Sweeney's character. And he's going to try and look after him. And he's, he's in the opening parts, we find out he's been, it's um, D.B. Sweeney's character is the son of uh, James Conn's former combat friend. And yeah. he's been asked to look after him. So the, the whole setup here is whether or not um, James Conn can make a difference in the life of this young soldier. And so it's a, yeah, it's a it's, smaller scale story. It's more intimate. It's like, again, yeah. this is from the director of apocalypse now. So I know we're going to be talking about, um, the benefits and the, and the costs of, of that for, you know, on the success of this movie, but, but it's, um, but it's, but it's a little slice of life story. It's almost more like a play mm-hmm. and it's just revolves around this small group of characters. Um, it's not a big ambitious piece like we've seen with something like Apocalypse Now. It's um, it's a minor film because it has so fewer ambitions, but also because it's kind of told in a minor key. It has a kind of a melancholic yeah. sort of overhang, you know, emotional overhang. But what well, it's you- a war movie. It's a war movie without war. Yeah, exactly. It's a Vietnam movie without without Vietnam, and it's interesting. This this it sort of placed it in in the release schedule that this is coming between you know the two major Vietnam War movies Platoon released in late 1986 and then Full Metal Jacket which came out in the summer of 1987 and I don't know if um, I mean like Oliver Stone was definitely a known quantity in Hollywood before. Uh, he was a platoon, but yeah, but and and Salvador had had come out sort of the year before, but in in, in I think in in most places Salvador was also released in 1986. Yeah, um, but I think it had played festivals in '85, but nobody really knew outside of sort of inner circles of uh, Hollywood who Oliver Stone was until after Platoon came out and and blew everybody away and won Oscars, but. Full Metal Jacket, I think, was a was a project. Kubrick Full Metal Jacket was a project that had been sort of germinating for quite a while. So that was definitely in the zeitgeist. Yeah. So I don't know if if, if Gardens of Stone, you know, uh, came to fruition because it was like, okay, here we go, Vietnam Vietnam movie era. There's also the movie Hamburger Hill, which came out right. at the same time, and then later on you see stuff like Casualties of War, and and so I mean, it is like we're looking at sort of the a 20 year uh ish sort of cycle especially of like the the escalation by um Nixon of the Vietnam War in the late 60s and early 70s so it's the time is right to start telling those stories again but it's you know this is a movie that fits into that sort of you know post Vietnam storytelling milieu but without really talking talking about the war itself it's i mean it talks about the war you know, in bits and pieces here, but it's more of a, a soldier story. And what it's, it's, it's interesting because it is a soldier, the focus on, on, on Willow, uh, D.B. Sweeney's character, he's a soldier that wants to go to Vietnam and every Vietnam movie is about how everybody wants to get out of Vietnam yeah. as soon as possible. I accept, I know in a weird way, apocalypse now where Willard is kind of like, he's just going to be there until he dies or goes completely crazy or whatever it well, is. Willard's resigned. Everybody else in the, he's resigned yeah. to be there and he, and he's found that he yeah. can't exist anywhere else anymore. He's ruined. 
Whereas this kid's a bright, yeah. you know, and bushy tailed and, and full yeah. of naive uh, optimism, mili- military family and ready to go. And, and thinks that, you know, the war can be won and wants to get over there and they haven't had their deadliest year yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's yeah. an interesting thing. The film starts with his funeral and I want to ask you, yeah. you know, maybe now or maybe after we've talked about it for a while, but about how successful it is that choice was for you in that a, it kind of puts context into everything, right? Cause you know, this, this mm-hmm. kid doesn't make it. So his optimism, his hope, all that stuff has, takes on a sort of a tragic quality. Um, but the other hand, knowing that that's what's going to happen, um, there's no surprise in the, in the film, right? It's like, yeah, this is, the, this is the story. The, the opening scene is the, his burial at Arlington. Um, and so there's yeah. a great irony in the story taking place with him just arriving at Arlington and not wanting to be there and wanting to be on the front lines. Um, but we get this, um, structural element, which, is, which are his letters. And so we hear that this is his last letter to the Sergeant and we hear this kind of lament, and 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 it's the and then that contrast from that weary soldier that in the letter to the uh, young optimistic gung ho soldier of the beginning of the movie. That, I mean, that's a pretty dynamic setup. Um, but I just wonder if yeah. you, knowing that he was going to die right off the jump, um, did that kind of spoil any any suspense or any kind of like you know surprises for you, or or did did you think that it gave uh, those tragic consequences? Did, did it did it make the movie all the more powerful or interesting because of the fact that it had a tragic consequence? Well, I got to say, and I don't think this has really come up. It hasn't come up in a while. I mean, not everything is that Coppola has done, um, you know, from Godfather onwards has always been completely successful. But I, I think, I really think having this opening the sort of flashback sequence, having that opening sequence where it starts at the funeral, and I get, like, I get that it sets up what's going on at this location and what the shows you what they do is. there, and yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a mistake. I think it's a huge mistake. Like, it's a, it's it. Sh- he should not have. He should have just rolled right into the present day. And I, 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 I. It's just like. When you see, um, you know, D.B. Sweeney's Willow and he's interacting with Mary Stuart Matheson's yeah. uh, character, his, you know, his girlfriend, soon to be he meets wife. His, he meets his long lost seen. first love. And, and, yeah. 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 Rachel, who we've already seen at the beginning of the film. Crying over And when you corpse. see them together and you're, and you're like, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, he's just going to die. Like, we know that he's going to die and it really just, I don't know, like it just puts this pallor over the entire rest of the movie and it's distracting. And I don't quite understand why he, like, it's a conventional, like you see this in so many movies, you know, this, this sort of like framing device of something happening, you know, and at a certain point in time. And then you flash back to the beginning and see things that lead up to it. And it, I don't think it, it's, I don't a cliche, think it's, it's always a, cliche. a good idea. It's a cliche. It's the yeah. old, uh, let me back up and tell you how this really started. You know, like it's, it's, yeah, it exactly. seems like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. Um, yeah, I didn't like it either. I didn't, I, I, looking back on it now, I feel like, um, they could have accomplished everything they wanted by having a, a funeral open the picture. It wouldn't yeah. matter whose 100%. funeral it was. And they, and yeah. what, what we're observing is just military, the routine and the performance yeah. of the so-called so- toy soldiers that they call themselves. Um, and then, and then just to have the arrival of DB Sweeney, I think you're right. There, yeah. There's a love story in it, right? Which is the fact that he runs into his old, you know, f- first, first love and is still in love yeah. with her and finds that she's still in love with him and he wants to marry her. And instead of those scenes being tender and sweet uh, and us rooting for them, we almost want her to run away from him because we know that all that's going to be there is heartache. Yeah. We already have the image of her crying at his funeral. So it's hard to yeah. root for them. Um, it's, uh, and it's, and it also, to me, it makes it seem like, um, a lot of, when that does work, when that framing device works is when we think we know the ending, 
but something happens in the intervening, you know, hour and a half or whatever that yeah, surprises totally. us. And we, and we come back to that beginning and we realize, Oh, yeah. everything we thought we know about that is false. And now we get, and then, yeah. and then for the next act of the movie, the third act is a surprise that anything could happen. You know, in some ways, even though it's a cliche, again, it, it worked in fight club, right? The opening starts mm-hmm. with, with, uh, Brad Pitt pointing a gun at Edward Norton's head and, yeah, we we have a we have a setup here that we are going to come to find is not at all what we think when we return to it, and it's successful in yeah. Fight Club, I think, depending on what you think of the twist in Fight Club. Um, but here, yeah, I felt like it didn't work. It, it, it what it gains you um, is you know, um, and what it loses you, it, the equation is it, it doesn't work out. It you you lose more than you gain. And it's yeah, absolutely. It, it puts, like you said, a pallor. I think that's a good way of saying it. It puts yeah. a, a tragic pallor over everything else. When the rest of the movie is not like that. No, it's true, and I think that like it's it's very easy to just forget about you know how it sets itself up because I mean I forgot about it, and then you know it happens that they're together and and you see them together and you're like oh yeah right he's he's doomed yeah, and he's doomed it's, and you, like if you had inserted the funeral in where it fits in the chronology of the movie i think it would have it would have worked better but it, they get it, married and then their wedding is supposed yeah. to be joyous but the whole time yeah. you're thinking like man she's going to be crying and that dress is going to hang there yeah. and be a reminder of broken promises you know yeah i mean you know Speaking of, of Carmine uh, uh, Coppola, it's interesting that like, like, and and you're right. Like this is a this is a movie. Uh, it, this is not a, like a dour down kind of movie. I mean, this is a movie that it's like it's sweet and sentimental element to it. Yeah, but Carmine Coppola's music in this movie, um, it's you know, it's kind of similar to some of the stuff that he did in in Apocalypse. This sort of like very, you know, slow horn based, yeah. like almost elegiac kind of kind of music. And I feel like like you really notice it in this movie and that kind of helps ground you a little bit to know that this is there are tragic things that are gonna happen in this movie. So I mean I, I guess it's interesting that Carmen Coppola in, in the way that he approached approached the music in this film is was wanting certainly to it's make the audience anchor. aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. So this isn't always, and and we also you know with the foreknowledge of it's Vietnam and we all know what happens in Vietnam and and um, there's there's that as well. So it's not like you know this is is just it's it, it's strange because this is like it feels you know like a very sympathetic armed forces kind of movie and this is the time in American cinema when we're seeing a lot of that you know, the, the uh, first blood part two and top gun, of course, the year beforehand and just the general political situation in America and the world in the mid 1980s. Um, so it's, you know, it is a very sympathetic, um, um, uh, movie to the lives of soldiers and the daily lives of soldiers. Yeah. I would imagine um, if you were a soldier, also, you would, this would be a film that you would really like. I mean, cause it, yeah. it doesn't like the Vietnam war, but it loves the army. Yeah. Like that. I think that's James, yeah. you know, uh, uh, James Conn's sort of character. His, the whole idea is that he yeah. thinks the war is a, a war that can't be won. Um, but yeah. he loves the, the army and anything that threatens the army is a threat to him and he, he'll do yeah. whatever he can for the army. I think the movie yeah. uh, is critical of Vietnam without being in you know without without being r- rampantly political um mm-hmm. but, but it really loves its soldiers mm-hmm. and it's a kind well, of a loving portrait on, of, of 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 yeah the war at home you know you you picked up on like exactly where i was going with that is is james Kahn. his performance and the way his character is written too as well but certainly his performance in the movie does so much to, you know, kind of illustrate that um, dichotomy of, you know, somebody who is completely tied to the armed forces for life, but also knows, you know, like, is he talks about how, you know, the war isn't winnable and, like, 
the people in charge are, they don't know what they're doing and that kind of thing. And, and you're keeping he, them from being know, able to win. He, and it's because of where, you know, I think a lot of, of where James Conn was in his life and career that he is, is able, able to deliver this performance. So well, he's well. been off the screen Somebody, for like four years, right? Yeah, he came out of retirement. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a more uh, mature performance you know, he's, than he's given up to this point. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, even Thief, which is, I think, probably his best performance uh, up to that yeah. point, is is a little yeah. showy, you know what I mean? Whereas, yeah. he, you know, he's not yelling here. He's he's he And he totally grounds the movie in this naturalistic performance. Totally, yeah. You know, he's not playing yeah. Sonny the Hothead. He's playing, he's just playing a decent guy. I mean, that's one thing about this movie is all the soldiers are decent. There are no bad guys in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, yeah. If you're, if you're wanting a movie like, Full Metal Jacket, you don't get the drill instructor. You don't get an antagonist. Um, yeah. If you you get you know you, you get a little bit of that, and you do get sort of people like yelling at each other, but they do it with love. It, <laughs> exactly, and Copeland knows like he's he knows what he's doing because the, there the stakes are not high because most of these characters aren't going anywhere. Yeah. They're here because they have a job to do, and and they're they're going to be here. Um, yeah, the you difference know, is in, in the drill instructor the scenes. You want them to pass yeah. inspection, whereas you know in the other scenes yeah. you just want them not to get attacked, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. There's, there's nobody, there's like nobody, nobody's really cruel to each other. Nobody, there's nobody. Mm-hmm. They're just a bunch of decent people, and I mean it's really a movie about uh, relationships and conversations, and mm-hmm. sort of. I think it does a really smart thing in the beginning. Once, so forgetting about the framing device it does a really kind of interesting thing once he shows up at fort myers um it, the way they introduce you to the it follows up a chain of command you know first he meets uh the, yeah. the private or whatever uh and then he meets the the next in charge and then he meets the next in charge and the next in charge and the next, yeah. and it, do, it does a really neat job of sort of telling you who's who and establishing the yeah. hierarchy of the fort um but nobody like it, the worst thing that happens here is he gets punched uh, in a, you know, lovingly, what <laughs> in, yeah. in a, a tagging ceremony when he gets his stripes, like there's no, yeah. nobody's getting yeah. shot, nobody's getting abused. There's no, there's no, um, there's no, um, there's there's just like nothing, none of the horror that made Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. what it was is present here. And I think the, the ghost of Apocalypse Now hangs so heavy over this movie because you're like from the director mm-hmm. of Apocalypse Now. Well, if you say from the director yeah. of Apocalypse Now, it's hard not to be disappointed by the by the lack of ambition of the movie. Um, but but if you say it's from the director of Peggy Sue Got Married, it's, it's not disappointing at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, uh, you know, uh, like just thinking about that... Just- Picking up on that sort of um, like the, the the violence that is sort of non-existent, like you, like there's that bar fight scene um, where it's all you know, you Yeah, you don't see much of the bar fight, but you do see uh, DB Sweeney and Dean Stockwell in the office together, and, and and Stockwell is telling him about how his father has passed away, and yeah. he's got this bloody nose. And that, you know, it's sort of illustrative of how, like, they have to get into bar fights because they, they aren't getting into real fights. Like, yeah. they're, not, they're not going overseas anytime soon. So he has to have this bar fight in order to, 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 to get some of that aggression. Or their of, maneuvers. Like, that, one, that, one, that yeah. one scene where they do, like, a, yeah. a recreation of, you know, like, war games or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, feels like Platoon all of a sudden. And you're expecting yeah. someone to get shot or something big to happen, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. I mean, it's a very slight f- story. So yeah, you know, once but once you, you know, acclimate to that, and once you once you kind of say, okay, this is not apocalypse now, and you just go with the movie, it's really mm-hmm. heartwarming. I think the the way that the characters form these bonds to each other, and and the yeah. big part of the movie, the heart of the movie is the relationship that forms between James Kahn's character and Angelica Houston's character as a, as a Washington Post reporter. Right. And they're both sort of like, it's like probably aside from Jackie Brown, maybe the best like romantic drama about middle-aged people. It's like, 
it's so sweet and tender and lovely, lovely. And Angelica Houston is so glamorous and, and a little sad and, and just lovely. And James Caan, I think she brings out the best in James Caan as he tries to kind of win her over and like his vulnerability with her. That's the thing is James Caan is at his best when he's not leaning into James Caan, the tough guy, you know, the gambler was a great performance. Thief was a great performance, Mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. here he's he's even less less of a t- although he kicks the shit out of that guy at the party scene, but yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But we're seeing a much softer side of him in this movie, and Angelica yeah. Houston really brings that out. I mean, I, what did you think of the love story between the two of them? Well, no, you're absolutely right, and and uh, it's funny because you know Coppola very cleverly sneaks a romance smack dab in the middle of this war drama, and it becomes in, in a lot of ways the most important story in the movie. I like Angelica Houston is, she's fantastic in this movie. She's Um, she's really great. And again, I think it, you know, it says a lot about Coppola that she is coming. This is her first feature film after, you know, winning an Oscar and her performance is, yeah, for for Prissy's honor, like she, her performance is May Rose in in Prissy's honor is a terrific performance. Um, but it's, it's like, it's, it's such a different performance in this movie. Um, she does like a lot she, with very little screen time. Like she seems like such a fully uh, fleshed yeah, out character. Absolutely. And I like how, you know, she's introduced as this journalist and obviously they talk a little bit about her being, you know, anti-war. Um, but it's not something that the movie harps on and it's not something that they keep coming back to. And, and that scene where he punches out Bill Graham, which is very funny, yeah. is about as, 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 as far as it goes in, in talking about how there is obviously this ideological, uh, you know, he's a Republican, she's a Democrat yeah. for sure. Yeah. And she, you know, he is like, this is his life. He is in the armed forces and that's, that's what his life is. And he's also, you know, somebody who, uh, is come, you know, he's a divorcee and, uh, you know, his family is, was probably torn apart because of his life in the army. And so you, you, you also know that there is that sort of baggage going into it. And I let, I love all their, their scenes together. And, and, um, you're you're absolutely right. Like it's a great sort of older um, older romance um, that you don't always see. Um, but yeah, it, you know it's it's a it's it's a very clever maneuver to have this sort of. I mean, he has two romantic stories in the movie, um, but this this one sort of you know. I think we get more really invested in the one with Angelica Houston because yeah, Mary Stuart Masterson doesn't show up until halfway through the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't really expect the the con Houston romance really to to take off in, in the way that it does. Yeah, it feels um, just like a B, like it should just be you know uh, an unassuming B B plot, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It, it really does become the heart of the movie, and the their scenes together, yeah. they have great chemistry, and they really seem like they're falling yeah. in love, you know, and yeah. and then the, and then it's believable once they're together that they would be together. Yeah. And, you know, you have a sense at the end of the movie that these are people who are probably going to be together for the rest of their lives. And it's almost, yeah, it's almost absolutely. sweet the way they deal with the, like, yeah. it, it's a joke the way they handle the politics. The politics in this movie are very much in the background. Yeah. It's not a, it's yeah, not totally. a political movie. It's a slice of life drama. It just happens yeah. to be situated within a, a larger kind of, you know, geopolitical backdrop because of the fact that it's, there's a war mm-hmm. going on. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's just, it's not a typical war movie at all. I mean, it's some, in some ways it's not a passionate film, you know, it's, um, right. But it's a very, but it is a tender film and it's, maybe it's a little naive yeah. too in the fact that it doesn't yeah. take on the harsher things about war. The only thing we, we see some, uh, war images playing out on television, which is how a lot of people would have experienced it. Um, mm-hmm. there's no flashbacks to like, um, James Conn's character remembering the horrors of war or anything like that. There's one scene where he says, you know, you want to hear some bad stories. I mean, you want to hear the story about the boy I loved who was like a son of mine. Or you want to hear the story about the boy I didn't know until I had yeah. to push his guts back in. Like, so we know that yeah. he's seen some shit, but the yeah. movie doesn't show it to us. The movie is very gentle. Um, 
Yeah. You know, and again, it's just about whether or not you know he can make a difference for this one young soldier. So the fact that we already know that he's not going to make a difference to that soldier, I think in some ways it's like saying like the movie, the movie, movie is outsmarted itself. It's like, it can't, mm-hmm. it can't succeed. And it hobbles itself right from the beginning by telling you it's not going to succeed. This guy's not going to make a difference in this young soldier's life. Yeah. Soldiers coming, soldiers coming back to Arlington and he's coming back in a body bag. Um, yeah. you know, and he's going to be one of the 15 drops a day that Elias Cote says at the beginning, right? When business is yeah. booming. You get 15 drops a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so he's just one of those soldiers, another one of the soldiers, you know, buried in the, in the, in Arlington, along with his dad, buried in the garden. Um, yeah. you know, but what does work though, are those interpersonal relationships, like, um, the friendship between James Kahn and, um, James Earl Jones as, as Goody Nelson, Sergeant Major Goody Nelson. We really believe mm-hmm. that friendship, that's a real friendship. And the two of them are like bosom buddies. You, you really buy it. It feels like they've known each other forever. Yeah, and it is interesting how, especially in the you know the first half of the picture or so, that it does kind of have a bit of an irreverent tone to it, in that it's not you know completely taking itself seriously, or the not the movie that's taking itself seriously, but the situation, and they aren't completely taking it seriously um, because they're it's it, happening you know, they're like white collar workers yeah. in a way. What's that? Well, the war is just happening somewhere else. You know, for the movie yeah, exactly. yeah. and for the characters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I think it, it works and it, and it doesn't in, in certain ways because there is, you know, it is, it does take a little while to get used to the tone. And I don't think that there's quite a consistent tone for this movie. And I think that's partially because it, it there couldn't be with what Kobola wants to achieve. Um, but it, you know, I, I do like, the, you almost wonder why you know, he did it. Like why yeah. he said again, this was a period in his life where he had to make a movie a year. So some of it yeah. might've just been, I mean, I'm curious cause I know you listen to the audio commentary for the Blu-ray release. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there was anything in there about why he chose this movie, you know, because, because of the sense that like you say, what he's, what's he trying to get out of this movie? Was it just an assignment? Was it just the movie that year that was ready to go? Or what was yeah. the, what, what was driving him to make this movie? Well, you know, Coppola's uh, always had an interest in military history, and he spent time in, in military school as, as a, a teenager. He was in military school for a year and a half and then um, couldn't handle it and took off. But he's, he's, he's always been interested in, in military history, and I think this movie gave him a Right, it uh, is from the screenwriter of Patton, after all. Yeah. Um, gave him a chance to sort of explore that. And like, I think he likes the ritual and the ceremony of, of things. Um, and I think that's basically why he, he chose to make this movie. I mean, this movie is like inextricably tied to the tragedy that, uh, you know, preceded it, um, of, of the death of, of his son, Giancarlo. So it's like, whether you know what his intentions and interests were in this movie, it's you know that the shadow of, of that tragedy supersedes that in a lot of ways. Yeah, so he's obviously he's a diminished. The, he's a diminished person while he's making this yeah. movie. And yet, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that it looks like it's a movie where the director's heart's not in it. It's a heart, heartfelt movie. But you're right. He did, I agree. Yeah, I read a thing where he said he it's the only movie he regrets making because he blames the movie for the death of his son. And that if he hadn't been making this movie, that wouldn't have happened. So it was, yeah. a, it was a boating accident, right? With Griffin O'Neill. Um, yeah. Who's uh, Ryan O'Neill's son. And Griffin O'Neill yeah. was driving the boat and they tried to pass between two boats and there was a line or something yeah. that, and, and uh, I had heard that he was beheaded. I heard different things. I don't know. I don't know what the, what the case is. He died of a fractured skull or something, but he, um, but yeah, so I can imagine that, story about the death of a young man you could see that that would be yeah in some ways would, would be something that would maybe be an outlet for him at the time or or would it just been something he had to force himself through to make with his broken heart you know i think it's probably a little bit of both i mean he, he uh there is an interview on the blu-ray disc and he talks a little bit about the making of the film and all his memories of the making of the film were as they happened because he's says he has never 
rewatched this movie. Wow. He hasn't watched it since it came out. Obviously for, you know, I would assume largely because of the, you know, the tragic aspect of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, 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 it's a movie that feels tragic because of the way that it, that it begins. But, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, there's, well, the difference between a drama do, and a tragedy, right? The tra- in a tragedy, yeah. a character can't escape their own fate. So no matter what they do, they're going to escape their they, they can't escape their fate. They're going to suffer their fate. And in and and by knowing from the beginning that he's going to die, it makes it a tragedy. What might have yeah. been better would be for it to have been a drama in which the character has the possibility of escaping that fate by sheer will of the choices that they make. And in which case, then the relationship with James Conn would matter. I think that's the problem is that if we know that he's not going to make it right from the beginning, it's like, do we feel like this relationship that we're investing in means anything? Yeah. The sort of like surrogate father and son relationship, which is, it can't really transcend that because, um, because we know where it's going to go. Yeah, for it, it would be a tall order to transcend the death of the of the son character, right? Because it's just it's, yeah. it's it's too depressing. Um, but then at the same yeah. time, I th- it feels like in some ways they're trying to protect against it being too depressing by making it not by not letting it be a surprise. Like if you thought that mm-hmm. he was going to make a difference and he was going to live and 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 James Con's teachings were going to save his life, um, then it would be pretty. It would, sh- it would suck if at the end that he just gets killed, right? Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. It's also a surprise that the movie never goes to Vietnam. You know, unlike yeah. unlike totally, uh, yeah. Full Metal Jacket, it's not like it's like there's the at-home sequence and then there's a sequence at war. It never goes yeah. to war. The closest we get to war are the letters yeah. we get back from it. Yeah. Yeah, not even, not even like, you know, uh, getting off a plane on a, on, a, on, a, on a military base or something like yeah. that. Um, but you know, it's, again, that's not really the story that, that he's trying to tell. No, no, not at all. Although, you know, it's funny again, thinking about comparisons to apocalypse now, I was just thinking about that one scene in the bar where they're playing the doors mm-hmm. and break yeah. on through to the other side. But again, it's like, it's like Coppola, what were you thinking? Because <laughs> of course, <laughs> even putting in the doors, like how do you not compare that moment to the end at the beginning of apocalypse now? Yeah. Right. Like it's like, yeah. You could have put anything other than the doors in there, um, but I think he just loves the doors. Like I think it's like Coppola loves like musical theater and classical music and the doors. Like he just he, he knew he's Jim crazy Morrison about the doors. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, for some reason, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Um, yeah, but but when you look at the movie, like you know the, how successful the movie is, if you judge the movie at, mm-hmm. as a relationship drama you know, just a story about a small group of people, a slice of life thing in a period context. I think the movie's very successful. You know, I've seen it now a couple times. And mm-hmm. the first time I saw it, I was a little bit underwhelmed. And I think that is because, again, I'm thinking Coppola, I'm thinking Godfather, I'm thinking Apocalypse. Those movies hang over all these other movies we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And in his filmography and also like as a fan watching them, you know, it's like you just know that it's from the hand of the man who made The Godfather. Um, or the man who made Apocalypse Now, and and we've got a similar subject matter. We got Vietnam. We got we got soldiers, you know. Um, and so the first time it's a little underwhelming. The second time I really got into the characters and and knew what was going to happen. So there, I didn't have those preconceptions or those those I wasn't bringing any baggage from Apocalypse Now or from The Godfather. I was just watching it for itself, and. I was struck by how tender it was and how sweet the relationships were and that I did care about whether, you know, them forming friendships and relationships. And I kind of forgot about the fact that he was going to die at the end. Um, yeah. And I think it's like, so there's two very different um, reactions you can have, which is one again of it being a Coppola movie and you suffer by comparison. And then two, just trying to take the movie on its own terms. So w- mm-hmm. were you able to, to watch it on its own terms or did you feel like, um, you know, remembering the other films hung over that? Well, I mean, it's definitely it's because of the way that we're watching these movies. It's hard to divorce it from where it fits in the, in the filmography. 
um, and, and where he's at and, um, what he's trying to express and what he's trying to do with his career. It's like, I sort of, if we're, you know, slotting this in with the previous work, this is like on the level of one from the heart and Peggy Sue got married for me. But unlike those films, which I, I'm definitely, which I would watch again, no problem. I don't, I didn't really get that feeling with Gardens of Stone. It's one of those cases where it's a movie that you admire more than yeah. you like. And I, I, I liked it quite a bit, um, you know, and, and sort of uh, just going through the performances, you know, James Caan and Angelica Houston, Casey Zamosco is really fun in the movie. In yeah, his, his his little comic relief stuff I think played well. Yeah, yeah. Dean Stockwell is 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 terrific. Um, Outstanding, and, as he says in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's some incredible set pieces in this movie. I love the um, sort of setup to the inspection sequence, which, yeah. which again, like, just shows how skilled Coppola is in doing crowd scenes and he can do, he can have so much going on in a crowd scene and it never looks busy, never looks chaotic. Yeah. And also at the same time, like it never looks like his actors or his extras don't know what they're doing or don't know where to go or they're stiff or whatever. And I know that he's, you know, he's missed a rehearsal, but again, like he knows what he's doing and, and there are, there are uh, and, and just the way that, you know, the, the movie is composed, it's interesting. It feels a little schematic in that it feels like he, like each scene is kind of slotted in to establish something that's going to happen in the next scene. And it doesn't, it doesn't quite flow together in a way that I haven't quite seen from him yet. That's definitely something that is a hallmark. I think of his work is how well, his movies flow together. You look at something like the Godfather part two, which is just this massive epic story with so many moving parts and so much stuff going on and going backwards and forwards in time. And it's not a movie where you get lost and it's not a movie where you feel like, you know, there's jarring transitions or anything like that. It's a movie that completely fits together and flows together. And that is, was weirdly something that was kind of missing from gardens of stone. It feels like um, there's scenes cut out. There are certain things. There, you know, yeah, it there, does. there are certain jumps where it feels like, like there's a part where after they're on maneuvers, where it, I guess James Conn's character somehow he's done something. He's not reported for duty, or he's off the base, or he's I'm not even sure yeah. what's going on. And then James Earl Jones' character shows up with war paint all over his face and like has kind of has it out with him. Yeah. Like there, where it seemed like. Did yeah. we miss a scene or something? Like I, I think yeah. I know. I know what you mean it doesn't have the same overall feeling of design. Like that, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. extra. There's nothing left on the table. Uh, it's all yeah. fits together the way it's supposed to fit together. Um, that's that's I, I know missing. that. I know that Coppola had shot some um, more of the like uh, the, the 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 military ritual stuff. Um, and the ceremony and stuff like that, which was cut out of the picture and, you know, probably would have, it definitely would have, yeah, it would have, this would have made it a longer than two hours. And I think he might've, I definitely think he was under pressure because he talks about it, that he was under pressure to, uh, to cut that stuff out to, to make it, you know, a sleeker, um, under two hours kind of movie. So that, that's, I mean, there's definitely stuff that's cut out. Um, and this is, you know, the rare movie where he's had to cut stuff out and he hasn't tinkered with it because again, it's such a difficult film yeah, for him to deal with emotionally that he hasn't gone back to it. Right. Um, so I don't know if the footage is still out there or if we might see it at some point in the future, but yeah, I don't but, think yeah, we're going to get a Gardens of Stone redo. Redux. No, <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, most, not in his, not in his lifetime anyways, but perhaps, um, you know, we'll have to wait for Roman and Sophia to yeah. and and Gia, Gia in there, and they can all like the Coppola family cut of, of Gardens of Stone. Um, but so, yeah, there. I mean, that's it's an issue. Um, you that was something that I, you know, 
it became less of an issue as the movie goes on and you get wrapped up in its story and, and, and not so much as the plot, but the stories of the characters in their lives. And because you you like everybody uh, in the movie, there's no one, there's nobody not to like, right? Like they're all decent characters. They all seem well-intentioned, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they've all lost in some way, except for the main character who we know he's, but he's going to lose his life. Um, yeah. Well, he's not the main character. I mean, really, it's James Caan's movie, right? Like, yeah, it's positioned from the POV because of the letters and uh, structurally that it's going to be DB Sweeney's character's film, but it's James Caan's yeah. film. Um, yeah, totally. You know, and then the only thing is, like, again, at the end, I'm not sure, like, what's what's changed for him. Is he any different at the end of the movie than he was at the beginning of the movie? Um, you know, there's things like that that I think. Again, this is from our a great screenwriter, right? I mean, this is Ronald Bass who did mm-hmm. um, a couple years later or a year later, uh, Rain Man and won the Oscar, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not like it's not well written. It's very well written, but there are some design flaws in the structure of it. That yeah, I, think I agree. It just doesn't, it doesn't allow you to, first of all, you're not really sure who, what you're supposed to be rooting for. Cause mm-hmm. you know, you can't root for him to not get killed in Vietnam. It's a given right from yeah. the start. Um, yeah. So you're rooting for him to make some kind of impression on the characters. It's going to change them. And again, I don't think that, um, like, they're not changed for the better necessarily f- for having, yeah, had this relationship with this young man that we follow through the movie. Like Mary Stewart Masters and life is ruined, you know. Um, yeah. And then, but that's why the successful parts of the picture are the parts that really aren't to do with D.B. Sweeney's character. For me, the thing I take out of the movie the most is the relationship with Angelica Houston. And mm-hmm. that's what I remember. Like when I think about the movie now, that's what I'm thinking about. And in some yeah. ways I wish that took up a little, I wish that was what the movie was about. And that, that, yeah. that it was like, instead of it being the B plot, I wish the B plot was, you know, the young soldier who was sent there to be looked after. Um, and the, the main story was the love story between the sergeant and his, Washington Post girlfriend, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the performances as well. And, um, you know, everybody is, is, is solid to great in the movie. D.B. Sweeney is a little green, it feels like. like he's, I think he's just he's, limited as an actor. Like, he's handsome. Yeah, he's blandsome. You know, he's blandly yeah, handsome. He, yeah, he kind of is. It's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's the right role for him for sure. Like he, he fits it perfectly. I don't think he quite knows, uh, how to capture the tone that's, that's needed for it. He's just not, um, he's not a movie star. So I think the way the movie, the movie, like it would have worked with a movie star. Uh, yeah, totally. I think a little bit better. Like there's something, mm-hmm. but there's just something about him that's not like, what does he say? Like, um, you know, you, there's a quote from the movie early on. They say, you know, you always lose the good ones. And so you want mm-hmm. to feel like this guy, it's the kind of role that like a young Brad Pitt could have played, you know? Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Or even Tom yeah. Cruise at this point, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's somehow DB Sweeney is just sort of, again, he, he's the one, he's a little under, he does, he's fine in the movie, but it's a little underwhelming. Like it, it should have been a star yeah. part. Um, and then you would have had that balance with James Caan's character. Um, yeah, exactly. Because James Conn like, James Conn just has the gravitas of being a movie star. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's 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 he really captures that sort of casual ease that makes him like he makes him makes him interesting, makes him you know uh, sympathetic, yeah, watchable, makes him like kind of lovable in a way. But he's also like this authentic military guy, and it you know, it, and we talked about you know, his sort of tough guy roles and him getting sort of typecast in, in, in tough guy roles. And there's that, that is here. Um, but also like it goes, it goes far beyond that. And, and he really is like the center of the picture for sure. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like the, the, what, you know, the success of the movie, we got to look at it like considering that Coppola is going through probably the worst period in his life. It's an incredible yeah. achievement that he made a film as coherent as this is. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's success as a Coppola picture. It's probably, you know, we'll do our rankings at the end, but it's probably mm-hmm. like to this point, I'd say it's probably the least successful, uh, satis- the least satisfying, you know, in a sense, because even one from the heart, like you can just sort of like, 
you know, be knocked out by the visuals of it. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing really like that here, um, you know. But yeah, I feel I, I feel very similar in that it's you know it's a very interesting film, it's different and it's admirable. Like you said, it's, a, it's a film to admire, yeah, but not to love. Yeah. You know, but not necessarily the kind of movie you want to revisit. No, no, exactly. So, you know, it's probably a good spot to end it there. Um, but mm-hmm. I think what's fun is uh, next we're going to do Tucker. Yeah. Which is a different kind of picture. And as always, uh, a stylistic shift from from this film. And um, Yeah, absolutely. I think only coming out, what, a year later? Tucker's 88? Yeah, yeah. Next so, year, 88, yeah. Still on that one year, one movie per year uh, schedule. So yeah, hopefully you guys definitely. Are... I, I mean, Tucker, I, I think more of a, more of a personal project um, for Coppola. Yeah, something um, he had wanted to develop himself over a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he considers it to be one of his for hire pictures. Oh, no? Interesting. Well, I mean, it is. I think it is, and, and and it isn't. I mean, he's he goes back to Paramount, I believe. I think he goes back to Paramount for Tucker. Um, but uh, I I think he I think it's not necessarily. He might even consider Godfather Three more of a <laughs> more of a yeah. higher picture than 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 Tucker because you know Tucker is something that he was interested in. Um, for most of his life. Yeah. So I think he almost be, made Tucker. I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, making one from the heart was a trial run for making Tucker. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's, it's, it's funny because the title, the title couldn't be more on the nose. It's yeah. Tucker, a man in his dream, yeah. which is like the Francis Ford Coppola story. Yeah. Right? Really? So it's, I've seen it. I watched it when I was a kid, but I haven't, I have not rewatched it since. Okay. And I remember liking it quite a bit, so I'm excited to uh, to dive into it in the next uh, episode. Me too. So hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this, you'll join us again as we come back to do Tucker, A Man in His Dream. And hopefully you've uh, enjoyed listening along with us. And uh, thank you so much for listening and, and, and letting us uh, rant on about our one of our favorite filmmakers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email. The old-fashioned way. It's uh, the filmography, the podcast at gmail.com. The filmography, the podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Bjorn. All right. Thanks, Reese. Talk to you soon.